Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read briefly from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Our sermon text this morning is from Psalm 125, which will sound weird because it's not the first Lord's Day of the month. It's not Psalm 49, which is our next Psalm of the month. And it's not from the book of Acts, which is what I'm preaching through normally. It's Psalm 125. It has to do with the 125th anniversary. But to provide a little bit of context for Psalm 125, I want to read from Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Paul here, in the very middle of his letter, addresses the church in Colossae with these words. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Hear now the word of God. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen. Paul presents us with Two remarkable contrasts. First, Christ who is in heaven and we who are on earth. He urges us to put into our minds the image of Christ there in the heavens, enthroned in glory and grace. By contrast, he urges us to put to death what is earthly in us. Sanctification consists of this journey from the earthly self which must die to the heavenly Christ who is our life. But then secondly, Paul speaks of the old self and the new self. And in like manner, he urges us 
Put to death what is old in you. That former life. That sinfulness. That selfishness. That once marked your ways. Instead he urges us. Put on that which is new. That is put on Christ. And holiness. Humility and love. It is striking then. That Paul would end at the put this portion that we have read by giving to us the tools or instruments by which we do this put off, put on. How do I put off my earthly self when I'm still stuck on earth? How do I put off my old self when that one seems so familiar and friendly? How do I put on the heavenly reality that I can only see by faith? How do I put on the future new self? Paul, in verses 12 through 17, gives us a list of tools. First, he says, love one another. It cannot be done alone. We cannot abandon that earthly old self by ourselves. We need brothers and sisters. We need accountability and encouragement. We need the fellowship of the saints to leverage us out of ourselves and into the image of Christ. Secondly, He says that we need the peace of God to rule in our hearts. We need God himself to come within us and work upon us. To give us peace and to give us love. And so he says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As a good RP pastor, I don't want to miss up the opportunity to note that Paul says that the word of Christ are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know, that the Psalter is the word of Christ. That's another sermon for another day. He says, let's have the Bible buried deep into our hearts so that the Spirit of God who is within us can bring up this fruit of loving fellowship. With that in mind, turn back to Psalm 125. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 125. This is the psalm that matches both in number, our celebration this coming weekend, as well as in theme. And for that reason, we're going to look at it this morning. Psalm 125, a psalm that sets for us this week a sense of vision and direction for the week's celebration, the weekend celebration that is to come. Psalm 125. Here again, the word of the Lord. A song of ascent. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Amen and amen. As many of you know, a few weeks ago, we were on a 40-hour journey driving from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Kalispell, Montana. A few weeks later, we did it in reverse, and we learned something profound. 
that somewhere around hour 30, 35, the questions begin to change. You no longer ask yourself, are we there yet? How much longer? You begin to ask yourself, will we ever get there? You begin to worry, does the end ever come? Can I endure and hold on? The same thing remains true for us as believers. That as we struggle again with that same sin that we wished we had shaken in our youth, we wonder, will I ever get there? As we're tossed and torn about by the tumults and trials of life, we may step back and say, I think the love of God is done with me. We begin to see and understand the heart of the psalmist who said, has he forgotten his favor? Does he neglect his love? We begin to lose heart because our hearts are weak. We begin to falter in our steps because our legs are unsure. And at last, Psalm 125 comes swooping in like a surge of sugar in the marathoner, like the breath of air in the desert, like a drop of water on a hot, miserable afternoon. And Psalm 125 says to us, Jesus keeps you going. Your friends, 125 years this congregation has worshipped in this building, preached the gospel in this city. What gives us hope and confidence that should Christ wait, there will be 125 more? It is not our past and it is not our present. No, the hope for the future lies not in what we see here or what we may recount this Saturday. No, indeed, dear friends, the hope for the future of this congregation rests in one place, the palms of Christ. For indeed, it is Jesus who keeps us going. So let us follow him. It is Jesus who keeps us going. So let us follow him. Think about this a little bit with me this morning. Notice first the psalm begins with the words, a song of ascent. Those little italic words across the top are in the original Hebrew. We have no manuscripts where they do not appear. They are likely part of the original version. A song of ascent. That phrase means that this psalm belongs to those collection of psalms which were sung by the Israelite pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem three times a year for the festival. It is the traveler's song. It is the song that you sing in the minivan when you can't stand the sound of the tires on the road anymore. It is the song that you sing when the, when the road is too dusty and too dry and you're too weary to continue. It is a song of a sense, both in the sense that it is to be sung when one is ascending up to Jerusalem to worship God, but also in the sense that it is to be sung when the soul is at its lowest point, and it is intended to elevate our hearts. Beloved, I would that as we read this psalm today, and as we sing this psalm today, and as we meditate on this psalm this week and celebrate this Saturday, we would understand rightly the place of this celebration. It is not merely for us to turn and say, our fathers and mothers have done well. 125 years we've been here. 
Nor should we look to one another and say, we have done well. But the songs of ascent train our hearts to look higher and to say, Jesus has done well. These 125 years are a testimony to the grace of God in Christ, not to the genius of his servants. This is a song of ascent intended to elevate our hearts to the glorious purposes of God in this world. Intended to set our gaze on something better than what we see in this world. Something more beautiful than what we experience in our lives. It is a song of ascent. So I beg you, with me now, let us ascend. Let us depart from the earthly burdens. Put away the cares and the worries of this day and of this week. And ascend with me. Let us begin the climb. Where all things must begin with Christ. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It begins with faith. Those who trust Jesus. Those who believe in him as the one from the Lord. As the one who has come to save us. Those who understand that the ascent out of this miserable existence into the glorious heavens... Begins and ends with Christ. That we grasp that Jesus is the great ascender. And it is in his wake that we must walk. We must follow him in faith. He is the one who scaled Mount Zion. But strikingly, he is the only Israelite recorded in history to have made the long, hard climb up Mount Zion with a cross on his back. Thousands of years, thousands of Israelites ascended that hill to worship God for the lamb that they brought as a sign of their faith, but not Christ. He came carrying his own cross because he was the lamb to be laid on it. This is how we ascend. How do we get out of sin and misery? Christ climbs the mountain with our cross on his back. Do you trust him? Do you believe in Jesus? Then those who have such faith, who see Jesus ascending the mountain before them, they are not moved. They abide forever. There is a permanence to Mount Zion that every pilgrim experienced. When the Israelite believer went three times a year up to Jerusalem, it must have been startling. How the fields would change as the crops rotated. And one became fallow and another became fruitful. It must have been startling how year after year the houses changed shape as they fell into disrepair. As some new couple got married, some new children were born. We had this experience just this morning, right? Where friends of old come into the room and they don't look the way we remember them. Or perhaps they do. My friends, the changes that come through our world, none of you look the way I remember you looking two years ago. There is a change. We change constantly. There is no permanence in this world. And yet, every Israelite believer stepped through the gates and there was the temple, unchanged. 
And there was the blood of the ram and the goat unchanged. There was the presence and peace of God through the atoning death of the, of the animals that were offered there. And there was something unchanged. The mountain of Zion was unmoved, abiding forever by the blessing of God, and they connected it to themselves. Isn't that stunning? Pilgrims who were constantly come and going. You and I who are constantly beset by the waves of this world, who are constantly tossed about. We can have something as permanent as the mountains themselves. Indeed, more permanent. We would have more success, my friends, turning Greylock into Cape Cod than we would breaking the power of faith in Christ. There is a trust in Jesus that is immovable. There is a confidence in Christ that is unshakable. There is a hope in the heavenly King that allows us to say with Psalm 46, if all the world should be removed and if mountains themselves were cast into the heart of the sea, we wouldn't move. If I lost everything I could have stood on, I would still be standing. Because I have an anchor within the veil of heaven. Because I have a thread of faith that connects me to the Christ who cannot be shaken. My friends, do you believe in Jesus? It is faith in Jesus that ascends us to heaven. As John Calvin noted, there is a faith that can at a moment leap from the deepest pit of despair to the highest glories of heaven. This is the faith to which we are summoned in verse 1. That those who trust in Jesus are like a mountain, unmoved, abiding forever. How many of you here got to enjoy the worship service in 1895 when we got started? How many of you will be here to enjoy the worship service in 2095 when they celebrate their 200? We don't abide forever, do we? And yet, the faith of Jesus Christ does. The mountains will go before the gospel does. The world will be utterly changed in its most permanent features long before we give up our faith in Christ. Let me give you a few reasons why. Why is faith in Jesus the most powerful and permanent piece of this creation? Number one, because it provides us with the love of God in Christ. See this in verse 2. That as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. You see, faith in Jesus Christ puts us in the middle of unassailable love. Just as the pilgrim of Israel would go up the dirty, dusty road amidst the fields of friends and family and see there the temple like a jewel in the crown of Jerusalem, sitting upon the hills, surrounded by the mountains. So the psalmist imagines the people of God. They're entrenched in the heart of His love. That just as one cannot shake the mountain of Zion, how much less can one shake all the mountains that are around Mount Zion? If you thought moving one mountain was hard, why don't you try moving the whole range? 
How many of you can relocate Pikes Peak? What about all the Rockies? How much more secure are the people of God? Not entrenched in jagged rock or bare peak, but surrounded by the Lord Himself. Our God envelops us in love. He comes to earth. Have you ever considered this? That God becomes man. Takes to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul. That He might walk among us as He did with Adam in the cool of the day. That He might surround us as Jesus Himself said on that mount. As the tears were streaking down His face. Why did Jesus take to Himself a true body? So He could cry tears like yours. So that they could streak His cheeks that are just like yours. As He looked out on Jerusalem, that Mount Zion, who thus far had been unmovably fixed by His love, and He stretched out His hands and Jesus said, How I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chick. He longed to surround her with love. He longed to envelop her with her embrace. It's like the vision of Hosea, who in chapter 2 unleashes this torrent of justice and says of the unfaithful bride, You have abandoned me and betrayed me. You have forsaken me, you adulterous wife. Do you know what I'll do to you? I will set you straight. I will clean you up. I will allure you with my love. How many of you saw that one coming? I will win you with my affection. I will surround you from this time forth and forevermore. This loving embrace of God with which He holds fast His people so that they cannot be moved has two time markers. First, it is from this time forth. And second, it is forevermore. To say it in symmetry, the love of God is everlasting and ever-present. From this time forth, it is ever-present. The love of God never leaves us nor forsakes us. The love of God has never abandoned us. Why are we still in this building 125 years later? Because we have been surrounded by love. Always. Ever present. It has never been missing or neglectful. But secondly, it is forever. How much longer can we expect to worship in this building? So long as His love surrounds us. It is everlasting love. It is ever present love. Friends, faith in Jesus Christ fixes us permanently. Because it connects us to a love that cannot be shaken. We don't move. Because we sit in the center of a love that cannot be moved. That cannot be broken. But secondly, it is because Jesus is just. There is the love of God in Christ, but there is also the justice of Jesus that keeps the church permanent. Verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. With this phrase, the scepter of wickedness, the psalmist points us directly to the authority and rule of wickedness. 
Scepter is this metaphor for royal rule and reign. It is not that he is saying the presence of wickedness will depart quickly, but rather the rule and reign of wickedness shall not remain or endure. What is more, I'm struck by this. I, don't, I, I forgot to look at the other translations, but here in the New King James, they do a good job of the Hebrew. It says the scepter of wickedness. Do you have that in your ESV? It's not a person, is it? In the Hebrew, it doesn't identify a single person. You know what? Those wicked presidents, don't worry. They're going to go away quickly. That's not what he promises. He promises that the scepter, the rule of wickedness, will not rest or remain. That is to say, the rule of Satan, that is to say, the rule of sin, the presence of evil, its power over us, it will not endure forever. My friends, there is tremendous hope for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, even as the scepter of wickedness descends upon them this week. It will not be there forever. It will not rest upon them endlessly. No, the land allotted to the righteous will not remain under the shadow of the scepter of wickedness. There is a king who will jealously defend the borders of his kingdom. He will exercise justice for the poor and the oppressed, such that the righteous hands should not be stretched out to iniquity. The mission of our king is to keep our hands free of iniquity. And he will exercise his royal prerogative to break any and every scepter that enables his righteous ones to sin. Let me say it in a nice way. My friends, you need not ever sin. There is no power on earth that can coerce the hands of the righteous to sin. You need not ever do it. Your Jesus is greater than all the temptations of life. Greater than all the powers on earth. Your hands need not reach out to iniquity. Let me say it a little less nicely. Any power you dare enthrone in your hearts to idolatrously equip you to sin will die. Jesus will not tolerate a rival monarch. He is just. He is good. And His people endure forever because He is ruthless with all His rivals. Destroying the power of sin in our hearts. Destroying the strength of suffering and sorrow. And saying, over my kingdom, this shadow will not endure. So on the one hand, I say, my friends, be encouraged. For 125 years, he has chased away the darkness. And he will do it. My friends, on the other hand, I say, be warned. For 125 years, he has sanctified his saints. And he will do it. The scepter of wickedness will not rule. The land that belongs to the righteous. This is sort of off to the side, but it's fun. The land allotted to the righteous, which at that time refers to the nation of Israel, right? The scepter of righteousness will be there, not the scepter of wickedness. When the kingdoms divide, you have the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. How many scepters sat over the northern kingdom Israel? 
19 dynasties. How many scepters ruled in Jerusalem? One. All the children of David. The son of David reigns supreme in the church. Jesus Christ's scepter destroys all rival scepters. There are no other dynasties to be had. No other king to be worshipped. No, the land that was allotted to Christ, by the way, that would be the whole world, he shall have. As Abraham Kuyper observed, he looks out on creation and not one square inch does he not say, that is mine. This city, it's his. This state, it's his. This country, it's his. This world, it's his. He is, is the scepter alone that shall remain. For this reason, because our faith puts us in the center of his love, because our faith puts us under the shadow of his scepter, my friends, we endure in this place. Thirdly, verse 4, by the goodness of God, even as the love of Jesus Christ, even as the justice of Jesus Christ preserves the people of God permanently, so the goodness of God preserves us. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. In this contrast, the psalmist teaches us on the one hand that there are good works to be done. That those who do good in the earth. But then by contrast, he says those who are upright in heart. That is the external expression of the inward reality. Their hearts are upright. There is a purity, a sinlessness in soul that comes out in word and deed. They do good because they are good. They live uprightly because their hearts are upright. And the psalmist prays that such people should experience the goodness of God. Now I know that you are all good Reformed theologians. And you have learned your shorter catechism well. How many of us can qualify for the goodness of God? Having upright hearts, doing good. The psalmist says, and Paul agrees, there is no one righteous, no, not one. We are not born with upright hearts. Indeed, David says in Psalm 51, we are conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. Friends, upright hearts are not something you're born with. Nor is it something you can make. Jeremiah declares that the leopard can sooner change his spots, the zebra his stripes, than can a sinner change his sin nature. My friends, we are stuck. We are stuck in twisted and corrupted hearts that do not grow upright. And we need a transplant. When you stick into the ground the roots of a tree that is set on growing crooked, and you don't want a crooked tree. Some crooked trees are very beautiful. But you don't want a crooked tree in this illustration. The only way to straighten the tree is to pull it out and put a new one in. And this is how we deal with our hearts. We go to the God of goodness and we say, do good. Give me an upright heart. A heart that is inclined in one direction. For by saying upright, the psalmist points us to this metaphor of tree. And why do trees grow upright? Why does the great green thing out there that drops all those spike bombs in our yard grow as tall and straight as it does? 
Because it loves the sun. Because it loves the light of the sun. What makes a human heart grow upright? The love of the sun. The longing for the presence of God. My friends, as, as I often heard in Oklahoma from one of my friends, one of my friends, if you aim for obedience, you will get legalism. If you aim for Christ, you will get obedience. Our good works are the fruit of a heart that loves Christ. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is the fruit. Love is the root. We must have upright hearts, hearts that grow straight to Christ, that are rooted in Him, trusting in Him, bathing in His love and in His justice. Then from us comes goodness. Goodness is what we find in us when our hearts are found in Christ. Then we can say truly with the psalmist, Lord, do good to us. Do good to us. In innocence and in purity, this congregation can pray, O Lord, do us good, for you have given us upright hearts. O Lord, do us good, because you have made us workers of goodness. These are the things that the psalmist teaches us. That by faith we are in the center of God's love. That by faith we are under the scepter of King Christ. That by faith we have good and upright hearts that are worthy of His goodness and His affection because Christ has made us good. Jesus is the one who is keeping us and carrying us along. So then we get the contrast. This is great in Hebrew poetry. This is how Hebrew poetry loves to do it. They're building toward this great crescendo and then the psalmist turns the lens and says, but... As for such that turn aside from their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Dear saints, there are those who turn aside to their crooked ways. It is an interesting use of words. For by calling their ways crooked, the psalmist contrasts such people with the upright in heart. Those hearts that grow straight toward Jesus or those hearts that turn and turn away from Jesus. When they say turn aside, they mean from that road that leads to Jerusalem. Remember, this is a psalm of ascent. Turning aside means forsaking the path that takes you to Jerusalem. They abandon the temple where you find the presence of God. They abandon the city of Jerusalem where you find the king of David. They abandon the altar where lays the lamb who was slain for sin. And in so forsaking Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, they instead go after crooked ways. Having abandoned all the types and shadows, signs and symbols through which the faith of an Old Testament saint was exercised, the Lord leaves them in the fellowship of workers of iniquity, in the company of evildoers. Because at the end of the day, as we saw in Colossians chapter 3, there are only two types of humans in this world. There is not barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. There are not owners and servants. There are not the powerful and the powerless. Let us be plain, the Marxists are wrong. Let us be plain, my friends, 
There is not Jew or Gentile. There is not American, African, or Asian. In God's taxonomy, there are two types of humans. Upright hearts and crooked ways. Believing in Jesus, not believing in Jesus. Walking to Jerusalem to worship in Christ. Or wandering off into the pits of death and despair. This is it. Those who turn aside from the love of God in Christ. Those who turn aside from the just reign of King Christ. Those who turn aside from the goodness that is poured out and into those who believe. Those who turn aside to their own crooked ways. The Lord lets them have their road. And they wander into the despair and destruction of evildoers. It is a stunning thing to live in this day and age, this season of life. To see 125 years come and go. And to realize we're celebrating the goodness of God, the justice of Jesus, the love of Christ. Here this weekend. At a time in life when America has bought hook, line, and sinker into the lie. Where you are hearing daily in every device connected to any other human being. Be yourself, chase your dreams, fulfill yourself. And Psalm 125 says, no, such crooked ways lead to death. Gratifying the self, fulfilling the self is doomed to lead to suicide. It turns away from true love. It turns away from true justice. It turns away from true goodness. It is in Jesus and Jesus alone that we as humans find purpose, meaning, value, mission. If we are to live in this world, love in this world, have joy in this world, then we must have Jesus. He is the one that keeps us going and gets us to the end. And so here at the end, the psalmist says, Peace be upon Israel. Peace is a small word in the English language. It's a really big word in Hebrew. Peace means the completeness of all good things. The fullness of every blessing. Peace is that moment when you step through the gates of Jerusalem. And those towering mountains you just climbed are now your defense. When you sit at the table with all your distant friends and family and you begin to eat and drink the abundance of love. Peace is the lamb slain on the altar. Peace is the praises of God sung by the heavenly choir. Peace is this full festival of Israel come to fruition. Peace, my friends, is what you have been doing for the last hour. And what we will do next Lord's Day when we ascend. Peace is what we find when we together as the people of God come under His name to call upon His name and to sit in the center of His love. To sit under the shadow of His scepter. To sit in the goodness of His grace. To depart from our crooked ways. And to embrace his upright road to heaven. Beloved, it is Jesus who keeps us going. 
It is Jesus' love, Jesus' justice, Jesus' goodness that keeps us going on straight roads that lead to an abundant peace. This congregation has enjoyed 125 years. May it be many more. I won't be here for all of them. But as I promise you, every time we have the Lord's Supper, the day will come where I will not preach from this pulpit anymore. And then we'll feast with Him in glory. Because peace will be upon us. Beloved, it is Jesus who keeps us going. Let's follow Him. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day, for this beautiful Savior. We give you thanks for this beautiful psalm and pray that you would write it on our hearts, that you would commit it to our memory, that out of these rich treasures we might live this week in hope, joy, and peace, that you might give us gratitude for the 125 years of love and justice and goodness which we have enjoyed. And we pray, O God, that you would grant us hundreds more should Christ not come. And we would pray most fervently that Christ would come. That that love, that justice, that goodness, that peace which we here taste, we might have there in full. We pray that you would awaken in us true saving faith. That we would believe these things about Jesus and follow him. For this we pray in his name. Amen.